Hello and welcome to the Friday, April 17th, 2020 edition of On Iowa Politics. This week, the 2020 presidential race, congressional fundraising, the 4th District GOP primary, and COVID-19. Hi, I'm James Lynch of the Cedar Rapids Gazette. With me today are Brett Haymarth of the Sioux City Journal. Good morning, Brett. Good morning. Amy Rivers of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier. Good morning, Amy. Good morning, James. Aaron Murphy, Lee Newspaper State House Bureau Chief. Good morning, Aaron. Good morning, James, from snowy Des Moines. <laughs> and Gazette columnist Todd Dorman. Good morning, Todd. Good morning. You can find us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe to On Iowa Politics on iTunes and Stitcher. First up, the presidential race. Uh, in case you mixed it in all of the COVID-19 news, Joe Biden is still running for president and has picked up the endorsements of Bernie Sanders, his old friend, President Barack Obama, and one-time rival, Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren. All that news seems to have been buried in the in other news sections of newspapers and websites, given all the COVID-19 news that we're uh, devouring. Uh, given all that is going on, uh, Todd, do these endorsements matter? Do they matter now or will they matter later, assuming that there will be a post-pandemic period before the November election? Well, you know, I think they matter in that if if endorsements were withheld by, say, a Bernie Sanders or a, or a Elizabeth Warren, that might show division in the party and that probably wouldn't be good for Joe Biden. So the fact that they're on board kind of checks off a couple of boxes and is probably a relief to his campaign. Do they bring a lot of voters along that might be skeptical of him? I, I don't know. Uh, I know that a lot of Bernie Sanders supporters have been tweeting a, a quote that I probably won't get exactly right, but basically he's, he allegedly, or, or said at one point, uh, you know, I'll never tell you who to vote for. And if I do, don't listen to me. So that sort of blunts <laughs> that sort of blunts the uh, the the impact of any endorsement he, he makes. So that's that's maybe Biden campaign will have to have to figure something out with that. But yeah, I mean it's it's good in that it shows that Democrats are are coming together at least at the you know at the top of their uh, at, the, at the top of, you know the, of the former candidates and the leadership. But the, the question is whether you know what will Bernie Sanders and and maybe Elizabeth Warren supporters in the rank and file do in November if they're not suitably convinced that Joe Biden is going to carry their progressive agenda into the White House. Yeah, it, it, the Obama endorsement is the one that I find the most intriguing because, um, you know, he could have endorsed Biden at any time. Uh, but the fact that he waited until basically the field was cleared tells me that Joe Biden probably wasn't his first choice um, in this race. And which wouldn't surprise me, uh, sort of given his politics and, um, you know, that I wouldn't have been surprised if he had come out and, and endorsed somebody uh, younger and, and perhaps more progressive. Yeah, so, I mean, it's, um, it's, it's possible. It's, and although the way the race unfolded, I mean, it looked like Biden was uh, dead in the water. And so I don't know at that point, Obama's probably thinking an endorsement really isn't going to help that much. And then it kind of struck like lightning that he was suddenly the front runner. And by then, Obama may have been thinking, well, he's already off to the races, so I don't need to endorse him. Although it, it would have seemed, you know, maybe more effective if, if, if Obama, if, if he in fact supported him. And you may be right, he may have had his eye on other candidates. But if he had endorsed him after Super Tuesday, that might have helped because things were still a little bit in flux after that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
And, and then there's the president, President Trump. Um, is he winning the campaign, at least for the time being, by being on television every day, helping the nation navigate its way through this pandemic? Um, or, Aaron, is he sort of shooting himself in the foot with these uh, uh, sort of dumpster fires of uh, conference slash campaign rally? Yeah, that's going to be. So I don't know that we have um, an answer to that yet, but it, it, it is going to be interesting to watch as this goes on. And and, and that's the, the question is exactly what you ask. I mean, he's 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 holding these tons of people or are, are watching them. Um, so the question is, are they going to help him or hurt him? As of right now, um, his approval rating has held mostly steady um uh throughout these um it, it's maybe starting to tick in a bad direction for him just recently here um so um but that could be tied in i mean that's not uh, the um you know the press conferences are obviously not the only thing going on right now um the, the bigger picture of the of the virus uh, i'm sure is playing into that and his handling of it um but yeah i mean it, the, the, those press conferences are going to factor into his overall picture of how um, uh, voters see him, um, especially during this pandemic. And, and, um, and you mentioned um, uh, some of them have been <coughs> um, uh, entertaining would be the polite way to, to, to put it uh, or, or unusual um, certainly. Um, <clears throat> and, and how voters perceive those is, is going to go, uh, is definitely going to contribute to the, 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 their opinion of him and how they see him um, and the way he's handled this pandemic. And uh, it will be interesting to watch that trend line um, as the, these uh, weeks and months pass here um, as this pandemic continues on and, and, and the president uh, makes decisions um, uh, on it. Uh, it. That's absolutely going to impact um him in this November election. And, and like I said, as of right now, the needle hasn't moved a lot. Um, just recently here, it has started to move in the, in uh, more towards the disapproval. So it'll be interesting to see if that trend continues or if he's able to use those um, briefings to, to circle his wagons there. I have to admit that I'm among the 45% of Americans who say they haven't watched his uh, daily press conferences over the past week. So um, but my impression has been that it's sort of like a train wreck. You know, you, you shouldn't waste time watching or looking at it, but you can't look away either. Um, and as you mentioned, Aaron, the disapproval numbers seem to be edging upwards. Uh, there was a poll out yesterday that said the number of people watching the daily press conferences has fallen uh, week by week. And only 27% of the people say the press conferences are very useful, which is down... Uh, like five points from the week before, um, and uh, Trump's uh, approval rating among general election voters uh, is lower than the approval rating of Congress, which is hard to believe, uh, <laughs> and governors. <laughs> but uh, and we've also seen a spate of polls this week showing that Biden is leading in head-to-head matchups, and actually the the margin seems to be. Um, I guess getting into what I would call a significant range. I mean, maybe beyond the the margin of error. Um, so, uh, 
Amy or Brett, I, I don't know if you have any thoughts about um, how Trump dominated the news cycle, whether that's helping helping him, is it helping the nation? Uh, do you feel calmer and more reassured after his news conferences? <laughs> I mean, I can just say that watching him is, is really interesting. I think usually in the beginning of them, there's there's some pretty good information, um, like what you need to, to know. But then interestingly, when you pivot to, you know, the the questions that are, are coming and then sort of the answers. That's that's when it becomes more of that rally style thing. I think that Trump really relishes actually, if he can't be there in person doing these rallies right now, he's, he's definitely using these as um, a way to sort of rally the base and remind them why they're, they're into him and why they uh, sort of like him and, and what he does. So that's it, definitely, he's using it, I think for that. And insofar as that works, um, that's sort of propping up him not being able to have rallies down the stretch going into the November election, at least. I, I would throw in that. So for once these started <clears throat> initially, I was only catching up to these press conferences through things I saw on Twitter. And I'd watch, you know, 90 second clips here and there of things that came up over the days. But a few days ago, um, I was done with my day my work shift and I went to turn on TV and I wasn't, didn't know what I was going to turn on. And, and they had just started, they had just started one of these um, briefings. I think it was at five o'clock and it was like, I turned it on like at five Oh two. And I thought, okay, I'll watch this. And next thing I knew I had watched till six o'clock and I thought I was just going to watch five or 10 minutes to get a flavor of it. And I just, it, I was so hooked in. And uh, one thing, um, you know, a lot of what, the comments that you guys have recently said here about that, you know, that rings true for me, but the one thing, and I know a lot of people don't, don't like a woe is me media bent or anything, but, and who cares if you know Trump goes after the media, but I was struck. So I started counting on the day that I watched of the first four questions, two of them, he immediately um, went after the reporter. And I think like three of the first eight questions, like Trump, you know, push back so hard on the reporter and, you know, the fake news and all that kind of stuff. And I just found that really in the moment watching it, it just seemed pretty bracing to watch. I think that at, at some point there is going to be sort of a, uh, a highlights reel of these news conferences that, that sort of a, in a documentary format that, you know, whether it's this year or next year or 10 years down the road, somebody's going to put this together and people are going to watch it. And it, I mean, it, I mean, because it, it, it's sort of entertaining, at least for a while, you know, I mean, the 90 second clips I've seen like you, Brett, um, you know, there is a certain entertainment value. There is, uh, I guess, a little bit of information uh, with Dr. Fauci or Dr. Burks uh, speaks, but, uh, you know, it's, yeah, it's just going to, it might even be a tutorial for candidates and office holders. I, I, I don't oh, know. No. Well, you won't, you won't have to wait that long. You're going to see clips of those in campaign ads throughout this fall. I yeah, probably. I yeah. yeah. Um, the, and you touched on, Jim, something that I just wanted to add in there. Um, um, that's probably the one thing that keeps these things still valuable, at least to the, the White House press corps, um, is the, the when Drs. Fauci and Burks uh, get up there. And, and those parts are usually the, the parts of the those briefings that are still useful and informative and um, and helpful um, as far as a public service goes. Um, it, it, it's it's when the president and and the and the reporters in the room um, start going back and forth that things uh, 
tend to go astray. Um, so, so it's tough, you know, from a public service perspective, you know, from a pure, uh, you know, some, some, so many of these have turned into train wrecks. There, there's part of me as a journalist that would just like to say, just, just stop them, just stop going to them, stop covering them. Um, nobody's being helped, but that's not true. People are being helped because of those other moments in those press conferences that they, they are useful for those moments. So uh, we probably should keep happening and because of that. I'm waiting for the moment when uh, ESPN starts carrying these live. Um, yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> because they don't have anything else. <laughs> Only if they have announcers like telling you what's going on. Oh, there yeah, you go. yeah, there you go. Bring Joe Buck back. Somebody. Dick Vitale yeah. and, and uh, Bill Morton doing uh, <laughs> presidential. All right. <laughs> well, we've got something else to talk about, and that's the congressional races. Um, there are races in all four Iowa congressional districts this year, as well as what um, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer is calling a marquee matchup in the for the U.S. Senate. Uh, and he's kindly saved Iowans the bother of choosing a candidate candidate by anointing Teresa Greenfield uh, as his preferred candidate to face off against uh, Senator Joni Ernst. Um, this week, the candidates revealed their first quarter fundraising hauls uh, in that Senate race. Uh, Ernst raised nearly $2.75 million this quarter, January through March. Greenfield had 2.25. Eddie Murrow had almost $1.5 million raised. Um, Franken raised 245000 Kimberly Graham 92000 and Cal Woods raised 51000 uh, That includes a $50,000 loan to his campaign. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it, it, looking at the numbers, it looks like the incumbents and those candidates who seem to have the backing of the party and, and sort of the power brokers did well. Um, in the first district here, Ashley Hinson's half million dollars seems impressive. Um, not as impressive, I guess, as uh, Abby Finkenauer's seven hundred and seventy-eight thousand. Um, I, I was surprised in the third district. David Young raised far less than Cindy Axney, the incumbent there. Um, other than the fourth district numbers, Amy, does anything stand out to you as you, as you look at these the first quarter for fundraising? Yeah, I, I wanted to talk about those fourth district numbers because wow, King has less than Cal Woods, and he is a sitting representative. That is pretty interesting. But basically, um, I you know I think it's really just I, I mean I'd love to compare these two numbers when we're not in a quarter of you know nobody having any money to donate. Um, but even given that, I think um, you know you're you're seeing a couple million dollars. Um, for the top three Senate candidates, that's that's really impressive. I think today, I, I think Franken coming in low is is kind of surprising. I thought he was doing a little better than than he was for the for the funds, but uh, perhaps perhaps Morrill is definitely gaining on him now. Um, and I think Finkenauer probably needs a little more than than she's pulling in. I think to to really stave off that challenge. Ashley Hinson, I think, is is pretty formidable. You know, she's she's got the name recognition. I think. I think now really got to stay on our toes here and, and keep fundraising um, even more. Yeah. Well, let, let's talk about those fourth district numbers. Um, Brett, you've been paying a lot of attention to the uh, that race uh, where you've got, what is it, 
four or five Republicans uh, in a race, four challengers to Steve King. Um, it, it seems like that's a marquee matchup too, <laughs> that June 2nd primary there. Um, and as Amy referenced, uh, Steve King seems to be a perennial underachiever in early fundraising, but uh, $43,000? Uh, right. I mean, what can you say about that? A really low amount. And just to run through them real quick, um, the one Democrat in the race, J.D. Scholten, continues um, to outraise all the Republicans. But for the Republicans, which is where the interest is for the primary, uh, Randy Feenstra had 123000 for the period. King, again, 43000 And Jeremy Taylor, um, 16000 He's, I guess, third of the five. Um, and then the cash on hand is is very telling. Steve King has uh, about 27000 cash on hand to spend as, at the end of this quarter and Feenstra has 415. So, you know, as we've said so many times on here, Steve King has not typically been a large fundraiser unless he's uh, absent, like the the 2012 race with Christy Vilsack. He just, you know, doesn't, <laughs> doesn't get into that. And, um, but these numbers are really, really low. You know, he has basically no cash to, to do any sort of, you know, media buy or anything like that. And, and that's another big story is that Feenster has been up with ads for almost a month now. I think it was, I think it's at least three, if not four weeks in the Sioux City market. And um, so he's reaching people that way. And, um, you know, I, I don't know. One thing when I saw the numbers yesterday, when they popped, I thought, well, are, are the numbers down because, you know, of coronavirus and, you know, people just, you know, they're, they're, money that you might otherwise give to a candidate, you, you're probably not going to give out in a time when with a lot of economic uncertainty. But this is just such a, such a very, very low number for Steve King. <clears throat> I, I've talked to a, a few of the campaigns this week and asked about, you know, the fundraising in March, and, and they seem to think that there wasn't much of a change, but they expect the next quarter numbers, they'll see a big uh, difference in, in uh, contributions. Um, that apparently the first quarter fundraising had been done before coronavirus, uh, you know, sort of messed up everything. But uh, um, Brett, in that fourth district race, I mean, when you look at these numbers, um, I mean, I was struck by how little Jeremy Taylor raised. Um, do you think anybody is not going to last until the primary um, that people are going to, you know, somebody's going to see the writing on the wall and say, uh, no, I, I'm out. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, at, at they're, this point, they're out of ballot. Yeah, I mean, I, I was, you know, we were monitoring that a month ago when in March when it came time to move from you know a candidate, uh, you know, to officially file your nomination papers, and and none of the lower fundraising of, of the five, um, the other people, I guess I should say, it would be um, Brett Richards and then. Um, um, Steve Reeder, who's Reader. a business, yeah, businessman from up at Okaboji, uh, and Taylor. There was some, you know, wondering if if one of those might not actually pull the trigger. And and now that they're in, I guess uh, Richards keeps loaning himself money. So you know, he didn't raise much from actual people, but he keeps he's over two hundred thousand uh, dollars in self loaned money to himself to his campaign. So I don't see anybody pointing out, but I I did want to um, spend a little bit of time, if if that's okay, to. Um, two weeks ago, I was supposed to be on the podcast, and I wanted to publicly apologize to everybody that I was right right before we were ready to record. Um, 
Uh, that was when the journal announced that we were going to start working from home. And then there, there was this flurry of activity of people grabbing laptops and everything. So at, at the last minute, I wasn't able to, but I had written a story that, that I was going to talk about two weeks ago, um, which was two months yeah, out. From, yeah, two months out from the uh, from the race, how it was shaping up. And and um, I talked to uh, Poly uh, University College uh, political scientist and to kind of you know, get his feel for the race. And, and he said, in essence, it's basically a Feenstra King race um, that the that especially in a, in a you know a big part of what's happening is that there is no longer any in person campaigning, and so that was that was interesting to to kind of write about that and and convey that for what that actually means. But for this for this professor, it means so if you're one of the three lesser knowns, if you're Taylor, Reader, uh, Richards, you know if you're trying to sell your brand and you can't actually you know communicate with people directly, you know, that's, that's a big strike against you trying to, you know, make a mark, build a brand. So he said, in essence, it's a, it's a Feenstrick King race and um, King, one thing that with no campaigning, what, how that accrues to King's advantage is that people know him. They, you know, they, they know what he stands for, you know, his, for all the things that he's done and said over the years, you know, if you like Steve King, you, may still like Steve King. And, you know, it's not like Feenstra is trying, with Feenstra, he's trying to, to get into that, you know, break into that dynamic and, and um, um, you know, make inroads with King's crew, so to speak. Um, and then the flip side of that is that Feenstra is the only one who's going to have considerable money and has, has the advertising. So while you can't, uh, go out and shake hands and, you know, have all, and all these, there's no longer any county, county party meetings, you know, all these meetings that you, where you could re- reach rank and file people, you no longer can do that. But now Feenstra has this money and he has all these ads. So that's, that is reaching people in a way that, you know, otherwise wouldn't. And that is very rare. I mean, they're, they're, that we just don't have, you know, a lot of the, you know, third district, first district, other congressional con- uh, contests that you guys all cover, have advertising early in the year. We don't usually have advertising till, you know, October, you know, September, October, November, right in the final month. So for a primary, this is, this is very groundbreaking for a candidate out here to have money and spending it on TV at this point of the year. Brett, one of the things we've talked about uh, in the past is that the, this five-way Senate race, Democratic Senate race, they're, it just doesn't feel like a, a, a primary campaign that it should have more intensity. Yeah. Is there any sense of, uh, I mean, do you feel like there's a campaign going on there in the fourth district or is it all happening just kind of out of sight? Right. Um, yeah, exactly. Exactly. The latter it's, 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 it's really strange as, you know, as a political reporter <laughs> who's used to, you know, going out and talking to, to people, you know, what do you think of these candidates or seeing them, you know, on the, you know, in these events and everything, it's, is, it's just so just the weirdest year ever, obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's um, hard to get, it's hard to get a sense, but I will say this morning, I did get a direct message from someone um, last thing to throw in here, James, I guess, but um, someone who has long contended that Steve King is going to hold on in spite of all this tepid fundraising, you know, for all these periods going back for a year and Feenstra, you know, blowing them away with campaign money and, that uh, Steve King would still hold on. This person, for the first time, seeing this particular uh, campaign filing yesterday, says, "Okay, I'm kind of questionable now." So, for, for whatever, for whatever <laughs> that's worth. 
<laughs> okay. Interesting. Interesting. Um, well, as we've talked about throughout the, the podcast this morning, uh, COVID-19 is uh, sort of affecting everything. Um, and, and after weeks uh, of being told that uh, all of, you know, if we all stay at home, wash our hands and cover our coughs, we'll get to, through this pandemic. Um, Iowa seems to have moved to a new level, I don't know, DEFCON 3 or something like that on the coronavirus scale. Amy, um, what's changed since the last time we talked uh, here in Iowa? What's changed? The last time we talked, like a week ago? Oh my gosh, everything. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Well, I can just talk about what happened since like yesterday. How about that? Let's just start there. Okay. You know? Well, you know, Reynolds obviously said uh, Region 6, which they're defining as most of Northeast Iowa, is now under a region uh, or a ranking of 10. And of course, they have a 0 to 12 point scale. 0 is COVID-19, we beat it, yay. And 12 is, you know, everything's, you know, effed. So we're at a 10 now. And it's supposed to mean, right, according to this matrix, 10 to 12 points is like a shelter in place. But Governor Reynolds, being Governor Reynolds, really doesn't want to do a shelter in place. So she's just banning all gatherings. So if you're gathering with anybody outside of your household or your immediate family, that's a no-no. Um, so that's an extension of the, you know, everybody else is sort of under that gatherings of 10 or more is a no-no. We're a little more restricted here now. Um, besides that, these workplaces that are staying open are are these employees at Tyson, for example, in Waterloo have been coming to me and saying, we've, we've got coronavirus in here and, and they're not doing anything that we're still shoulder to shoulder. Um, there's no personal protective equipment. You know, we're really being put at risk here. And of course you listen to that because you look at the plant down in Columbus Junction. Um, there's a, there's a national beef plant in Tama that shut down too. Um, and, and while these plants are super vital to the, to the meat supply and the food supply, frankly, across America, they're also um, staffed with these very low wage workers that are very uh, worried about losing those jobs that are that are providing for their entire families. And so it's really it was just really heartbreaking to hear these stories. I just kept doing them over the last couple of days until finally I was so excited by this. Our county officials finally started taking this seriously. They announced independent of the state that there was an outbreak at the Tyson plant. Um, they don't define it the same as the state does. The state is defining it as 10% of a workforce, but with about 3,000 workers, that would be 300 people that would have to be testing positive for coronavirus before they would actually define that as an outbreak, which seems a little high. And so the county independently deciding this is providing test kits. Any Tyson employee with symptoms can get a test now. Um, they're taking it seriously. They're, they're taking management to task for sort of, you know, failing to put all of the measures that they believed should be put in place in place. Um, so hopefully that means that they've caught it early enough that it won't become as giant of a problem as we've seen elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, that seems to, I mean, definitely getting more serious. Uh, and it's not uh, um, just sort of theoretical anymore when we see these outbreaks uh, in places like food processing. Um, Aaron, um are we going to be seeing more of that? And do we have any idea what processes are doing to, to keep employees healthy and, and avoid the situations? I mean, Amy talked about you can get a test. I would, I, I guess I would be surprised if they had tested 10% of their workforce, let alone found 10% with uh, the coronavirus. 
Yeah, I mean, that's definitely the concern. And, and given how many times we've seen it already, I, I think we're up to, um, is it three or four? Columbus Junction, Tama, uh, Waterloo, and then just across the uh, river up in the northwest corner of the state in Sioux Falls. Um, Smithfield, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, 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 yeah, that's absolutely the concern. Um, there are steps being taken between the state and, and these companies. Um, the state is, uh, as you alluded to, trying to get more testing out to these uh, places, including at places where outbreaks haven't happened yet. Um, um, and, and then the companies are, are trying to take um, the steps as best as they can to have more of the equipment like face shields and masks and, and uh, physical barriers where they can. Um, uh, but look, part of the problem here is it's, it's reactionary. It's already happened. Um, if we really wanted to prevent these things, if these steps probably should have been taken two or three weeks a month ago, instead of now after outbreaks have already occurred. Um, so that's part of the problem. And the other part of the problem is, and is when you talk to folks about this, including folks in the ag sector, there's a concession that look it, in these places, there's only so much you can do. Uh, Amy alluded to how. Um, on these assembly lines, these workers are literally standing shoulder to shoulder because the the the, the product is moving so fast um, on these assembly lines that it takes that many people. You have to be standing that close to be able to to process them. Um, uh, and 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 so there's really um, it, it's virtually impossible to take full normal protections uh, that you would for workers at other types of businesses. It, it's almost it. it, it almost can't be done at places like this. So right. it's that, um, that, that balancing scale that, um, you know, public health officials and, and business leaders are trying to walk that tightrope between, um, and again, as Amy alluded to, needing to keep these things open to keep that food supply chain moving, um, not disrupt that um, uh, so we don't have a sudden jump in food prices uh, at a time like this, which would obviously right. be devastating. Um, versus trying to protect the health of, of these workers, which is which is a significant challenge. Yeah. Well, Amy, uh, Todd, and I live in Region Six, um, where we're at the ten on the COVID nineteen scale. Um, so uh, I, I don't know, Todd, are you taking any additional precautions there at your house? Uh, instead of sheltering in place with your family, are you kicking anybody out? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm I'm the only one that would. Be at threat to be. Uh, Do you have a dog house? Do you have a dog house? No, no. I have like a small shed next to the house. With the, with the, well, Aaron, comfortable with the Aaron, snowfall. Yeah. <laughs> it's not going to last, Todd. It's not going to last. The, the snow. I was thinking about going outside well, and making mean, 11 snowmen just to see if something came by and. Ticketed them. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. Well, uh, Aaron and, and Brett, take care of yourselves because uh, you know you may have to carry on on Iowa politics next week uh, without it. We're in, the, we're in the red zone, I guess. Um, but that's it for this edition of On Iowa Politics. I hope it was worth your time. If you liked it, tell a friend and subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you find your podcast. Send fan mail to podcasts at thegazette.com. You can find us every week on the homepages of the Quad City Times, Sioux City Journal, Muscatine Journal, Mason City Globe Gazette, Waterloo, Cedar Falls Courier, and the Cedar Rapids Gazette. 
And before we go, I'd like to invite everyone to a virtual edition of Pints and Politics, a political discussion featuring Gazette columnists Liz Lenz, Adam Sullivan, the incomparable Todd Dorman, and myself. Check it out at thegazette.com slash pints politics April 16. Kelly Partacooper will take us out. If you know an Iowa band or musician who should be on our show, send us a sound file and subscribe to On Iowa Politics on iTunes and Stitcher. For Brett, Aaron, Amy, Todd, and our producer, Stephen, I'm James Lynch. Stay well, and thanks for listening. Let my country home, I left the fields and plains. Feel the desert Touch the floor